0: Welcome to Great Loop Radio, brought to you by America's Great Loop Cruisers Association. We're dedicated to sharing Great Loop information and inspiration with those actively cruising, planning for, or dreaming about a Great Loop adventure. I'm Kim Russo. I'm the director of AGLCA. Today, we're going to talk about uh, doing the loop by bringing crew aboard. And this might pertain to people who perhaps have a significant other or spouse who does not want to do the whole trip or somebody who's planning to do it solo, but would rather have the company and the help for some of the parts of the trip. So our guests will be Chris and Hube Hopkins. They recently completed the loop using this method. And they're gonna tell you about how they managed it. Cause I think the biggest question for a lot of people is logistics on something like that, where you're bringing on lots of different crew members. And I'll, I'll let them tell you all about that. Before we jump in with Chris and Hube, I do wanna take a moment to recognize and thank our Admiral sponsors, who support AGLCA at the highest level. They are Curtis Stokes and Associates, Passage Maker Trawler Fest, Skipper Bob Publications, and Waterway Guide Media. As always, we encourage our listeners and viewers to support these businesses that support the Great Loop. So an official welcome now to Hube and Chris Hopkins. Thank you for joining me. Welcome to Great Loop Radio.
1: Yeah, what a Thank pleasure. You. I've listened to so many of these podcasts. It's fun to be on one.
0: Yeah, well, and and first of all, a big congratulations to you. You completed the loop uh, 10 days ago, uh, November 19th aboard your Grand Banks 42. Um, and I know, Chris, you did parts of it with Hube, and uh, Hube, you also brought 11 other crew members aboard for different pieces. So that's what we really want to talk about today. Uh, but let's just start off kind of from the beginning, Hube. What interested you in doing the Great Loop?
1: Well, I was one of the... Uh... I guess, early people who I've been wanting to do the loop for probably over 35 years. Uh, I bought my first little small grand banks back in 1985. And the loop was just kind of a, a, a general idea. In those days, your parents really kind of, you know, pioneered this whole thing. And so I got the bug way back then and been following the loop. And, you know, finally, with some of your great work, there's so much resources on AGLCA that I joined. And, Uh, you know, and finally bought the boat and then finally actually ended up doing it. I wasn't sure any of those things were ever going to happen, but, but they did.
0: Mm -hmm. And Chris, I understand that you were reluctant, maybe not reluctant about, you know, the idea of the loop, but reluctant to do the entire trip with you. So tell us about that. You know, what made you decide that perhaps doing the entire 6,000 or so miles was not for you?
2: Well, First of all, I'm not a real avid boater. I never have been. So I was brought up in a Northern state where boating wasn't done much. I mean, my whole family didn't particularly, we didn't know boating, let's put it that way. I first was introduced to boating by Hugh after I married him. So it was, I was never comfortable and still am not, various different aspects. So the thought of doing a whole trip like that by boat, 6,000 miles was mm-hmm. just not, I don't know, it was just not something I knew I would be able to do the whole thing. Yeah.
0: Well, and that's um, part of, I think, what makes your story interesting, because for some couples, that would be the impasse right there. <laughs> you know, one person really wants to do it, one person, not so much. So, you know, we encourage everybody to do the loop in a way that works for them in a way that is pleasurable to them. It is pleasure boating. Um, so you reach this what for many would be an impasse, as I said, but for you was not, but you did, did you consider different possibilities for how you would do this? You know, Hugh, did you ever consider not going? Chris, did you ever consider perhaps you would do the whole thing? And how'd you end up to, you know, where uh, Chris was along for the ride when she wanted to?
1: Well, uh, you wanna answer first, go ahead.
2: Well, first of all, I I, I never considered Wanting to do the whole thing, but I knew that it was a passion and a long term goal of his. So I wanted to try to support him in the best way possible. So we kind of hashed it out a couple of times as to how it might work. It's, it was still very frightening to me, not knowing how long he was going to be gone for um, certain segments or whatever, how much it was going to cost. That was another factor I was concerned about. But um as the planning went on and we talked about it, it kind of seemed to fall into place. So I'll let Hugh expand on that.
1: I, yeah, and it, it, it sort of evolved, I guess, over the years. Uh, my son, who who ended up doing a, a a fairly sizable part of the loop with us, Brian, he's an avid voter. And so that was, you know, he was my backup, if you will. So it, the one thing that happened that made it really possible this year was. He graduated law school, took the bar exam, actually passed it, and, but he had six weeks or seven weeks in there between bar exam and, uh, starting work. and starting work. So he was able to do the whole Northern Canadian part of it, and the timing of it worked so he could meet us up in Brewerton, New York, and do all the really fun part in Canada, Great Lakes, and he went all the way to Grafton, Illinois with me. So I think that, that that's an important point, that there probably needs to be one person in all of this, who's kind of an anchor who can do multiple legs with you or do one long leg. Uh, it would have been a lot harder with without him there because that would have added from 11 to 15, legs or so, 15. 10 legs to 15 legs. And it was already starting to wear on me by the time we finished. So I would say that that was an important part of it. I will also say that doing nothing's always an option, right? So anytime you got a decision, doing nothing should be an option. And But th- that we pretty much worked through that. so
0: um and i had the pleasure of meeting brian and well i saw all three of you but uh, meeting brian for the first time in i think it was sturgeon bay that our paths crossed um, and that was certainly a lot of fun um so he was kind of the anchor um how many legs chris did you wind up doing
2: i did uh let's see one, two, three, four probably five total Mm -hmm. and I think we ended up with 14 Mm
0: -hmm.
2: a a lot of them were down the middle of the country I kind of knew off the top of my head right up right up front that I would did not want to do the the rivers down the middle of the country I think Mm -hmm. I had read about that how it wasn't very pretty it could be kind of (laughs) frustrating at times Mm -hmm. and you had to kind of compete with the um, the barges and the tugs and Mm -hmm. all of that so that, for some reason, didn't interest me. I wanted to do as many pretty parts as possible, and I also wanted to do some cruising with my brother, who was really excited about this whole thing, so wanted to capitalize on the time that we could spend time together. So,
0: so what? which legs did you choose as the ones that you wanted to be part of?
2: Well, I wanted to be starting uh, right at the beginning, so we did the Stewart Charleston leg, and then... Um, went to Brian's graduation in Washington and then did the um, Bayboro, North Carolina to Oxford, Maryland segment with my brother. Um, And then did the Erie Canal, Hudson River, New York Harbor segment with my brother. Again, I knew I wanted to do the Trent Severn Waterway right off the top. I had heard so many good things about it. So and all going to be together as a family for two weeks. So um, that to me was the highlight of any of the segments, and then um, Door County. Door County, mm-hmm. and I was supposed to do the last leg in Florida from Tampa <laughs> back to Stewart. so I could be uh, at the end of it too. But Hurricane Ian put a damper on all of that. So right,
0: as it did many things. Yeah. Um, but it sounds like you you definitely hit a lot of the highlights and, and you know, from the look on your face, I think you also had a wonderful experience um, with the parts oh, yes. that you did.
2: Absolutely. I mean, there were some parts of the Erie Canal that we weren't and we were very disillusioned with, but <laughs> it was the Erie Canal. I mean, to say that we were on the Erie Canal is just.
0: Yeah, pretty amazing stuff.
2: Yeah, pretty amazing.
0: So it sounds like between, you know, Brian and Chris and, and Chris's brother, you had um several anchors there of the crew, so yeah, to speak.
1: Right. Um, yeah.
0: So how many other crew members did you bring aboard or how many, how many were there total? See,
1: other, there would have been eight other people. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, all, all stayed, would stay usually about a week. Five days was the shortest. Longest was about three weeks, but that was the last leg where where I had to add a person who I had a, Guy was going to was very experienced. He was going to go across the crossing with me, uh, and I ended up asking him to stay through going through Fort Myers and all that because we did a lot of that offshore. Uh, so he he stayed with me for that whole part, kind of unexpectedly when when I didn't feel comfortable asking Chris to come along when it was going to be all anchoring and I wasn't sure what we were going to find down there. So, right. Yeah. So
0: you know, obviously, you've, you've been boating for a long time. You have a lot of boating experience. What was it that made you feel the need for crew? Um, you know, was it the technical aspect of, of you know, having um, a second person on watch, um, so to speak? Was it the social aspect? You know, tell us more about the reason for, for choosing to bring crew aboard.
1: Well, I think there, there were, uh, I really admire these people who do it solo. I ran into several on the loop, uh, but I think it's a little nutty, to be honest. Uh, you know, I, I love those couple of guys that I did meet, but I think it's not very safe. Uh, you know, I've been boating a long time. I've got over 50 years of experience. And, you know, as far as me going from one short little period, you know, one place to another place by myself, probably not a big deal. I do it sometimes in the Chesapeake Bay and other things. But, uh, you know, I mean, things can go wrong. You can fall. There can be something wrong with the boat or some navigational emergency. Just having somebody there to hold a wheel for five minutes is Pretty much a necessity. I mean, uh, I know people do it because nothing's gone wrong and nobody's killed themselves doing it, but I just think it's unsafe.
0: Right, and that's uh, fair enough. As I said, you know, to each their own on how they choose to do the loop. Um, yeah. And I think there are many people who do it solo. Who, um, if they had a little bit of a, a bigger boat, a lot of a lot of solo loopers choose a small boat specifically because they know they'll be solo. Um, right. But for loopers on a boat your size, again, you're we're on a Grand Banks forty-two. Um, I think there probably are many who would love to have crew aboard, but aren't quite sure how to find those people or how to organize those people. So let's uh, kind of dive into that a little bit. Um, so how obviously a few of them were family members. How did you find your 11 crew members?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting when you asked me that I, 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 I when I went and looked at all of them, they had all cruised with me before with two exceptions. One was uh, a friend who I brought along or a, now a friend who I brought along, who was the uh, the nephew of a friend of mine who passed away this past year. And I knew he was like really interested in buying a boat, living aboard and eventually doing the loop. And, you know, it just felt like a way to give back to him. So I brought him along. He had a great time and he's uh, a lot closer to your age than mine, but we had just the best time, you know, and, and bonded. And then I, I, uh, got hooked up with Ken Pfeiffer, uh, who's the har- a harbor host in Grafton, Illinois, and uh, he came along with me for a little while for one, one segment as well. So everybody else, though, I had already cruised with before because, you know, I'm delivering a boat up and down delivering, but I'm bringing a boat up and down the East Coast six or seven years before this, and a lot of times Chris didn't want to go. And so I would have And these people had come along yeah. before, you know, so basically they, they were people that were interested in, in boating friends of mine, and they would either do it combination of things. I think they were interested for the boating aspect. They loved to be on a boat. They also did it, uh, you know, sort of as a favor to me, knowing that if they didn't come along, you know, I might have to do it by myself. They only go kill myself, but I think they just did it because, you know, I asked them to come along and they, they knew I wanted them to come. So they said, sure. And then it's like a vacation. The other thing that, that I think we, we hit on it earlier is I tried to make it as easy as possible. So the logistics coming in and out, flights, so uh, flights, marinas that we were at, uh, all those things. I, I tried to make that as simple and as reasonably inexpensive for them a, as I could.
0: Yeah. Now, did you have the Grand Banks 42 before you started the loop?
1: Yeah, I've had that for uh, going on seven years now.
0: Okay, because I think one thing the boat, yeah, yeah. One thing I hear from people is that you know when they tell their friends and family they're buying um, a boat of a typical looper size, everybody wants to come along. Everybody wants to ride on the boat, and then when it comes down to you know getting into the details of when can you come, (laughs) you know most well I shouldn't say most, but a lot of people don't have the lifestyle that allows them to have the flexibility. to do this kind of travel where you can't necessarily, and and it's kind of an old looper adage that you can tell guests when you'll pick them up or where you will pick them up, but you can't tell them both. And a lot of people I think struggle with that level of flexibility. So um, how did you manage that? I know you kind of were, were choosy about, um, it sounds like you did a lot of pre-planning about where the stops would be and where the crew would exchange. So tell us a little bit about how you chose those places and how far in advance you were able to plan that.
1: Yeah, you know, I started with the, the the Looper's Companion book and the big map, and that really became my schedule. Uh, it, I started with the people who were my favorites first, of course, Chris and her brother and Brian, and I knew where they were going to fit on my map. And then I started adding my favorites first. So the people that had been with me before, my closest friends, I started filling those in of what their schedule was around holidays and other events they had. And So I'd pick out segments that I thought they would enjoy, and you know they got kind of first dibs on where were we gonna, where were going to, where we were going to, what legs we were going to do. Uh, the legs were sort of defined, by, though, by by where there was a really good airport, where you have transportation, which was a bigger problem than I thought it was. In a lot of cases, no Ubers around and no taxis exactly. and those no things. And then Enterprise, you know, was a big snafu in Half Moon Bay one time. Uh, another story. And and then also where we could replenish. So you had to have those four things to, to do a crew change, I felt like. So we ended up, you know, transportation got solved with Ubers and taxis. And in most places we could find, if we really dug deep enough, we could find somebody, a private driver to go pick up somebody at the airport. We did that for Chris and uh, Green Bay going to mm-hmm. Door County. We also did it, uh, the biggest logistical nightmare was down in Grand Harbor, Kentucky, where I had to take people in and out of Nashville's two and a half hours away. So we used a driver for one part of that. And then I had a rental car for the other part of it. So, uh, you know, we stopped in places I can reel off a list if that's okay, where we stopped.
0: Yeah, I think that would actually be helpful for people who maybe are contemplating the same thing would be good to know where those crew exchanges happened, because you've you've done the legwork for them to figure out where that combination of good airport and and other, you know, ground transportation exists.
1: Yeah, I don't think those, these are the only ones, but Stewart, Florida, Charleston, Oriental, North Carolina, that was a little stretch, but I have family there. And so Oriental is a natural place for me. I have plenty of drivers there. Oxford, Maryland, Half Moon Bay, New York, which is a common one, Brewerton, New York, and. Both of those marinas are great places. I mean, the marinas are both spectacular looper supporters. Uh, Midlands, Ontario was another one when they finished the Great Loop. So that was easy enough. It was about an hour and a half, two hour trip to so Toronto nice. mm-hmm. for, for Chris. So we, we were able to do that. Uh, Sturgeon Bay, and then she flew out of Green Bay. Uh, Grafton, Illinois is a great place. You had Ken there to help with transportation and St. Louis is close by. Uh, Paducah, Kentucky, Grand Harbor down in Kentucky, and then Mobile. So. Yeah,
0: and, and <laughs> list, I right mean, that it. is very helpful because a lot of people don't, um, you know, until you pull out a map and until you look at these options, people don't know how close Brewerton, New York, for example, is to the Syracuse airport. Um, oh. You know, all these little hidden gems that are actually, feel like you're in the middle of nowhere, but they're actually fairly close to a, a decent airport and some good transportation.
1: Yeah, there were places, and there probably is a lot more, but places like Brewerton, Marina, there that. the, I forget the name of the marina, but it's in Brewerton, New York. You can't miss um, it.
0: We've got two AGLCA sponsors there. One is SK Yards and the other is Winter Haven.
1: Yeah, Winter um, Haven. So, yep. Yeah,
0: they yep, just they're fabulous there.
1: They didn't charge us enough for believing. We left the boat there for 10 days. And, oh, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so let's take a, a quick break and play a message from one of our sponsors. Um, when we come back, I just want to talk a little bit more about... Um, you know what what the expectations were of the crew any special skills that they needed and any special skills you felt you needed when you were taking on crew that you knew and had cruised with but you know it's not the same as doing all five thousand miles with the same person so we'll talk about some of those skills when we come back okay this is a message from steve the dock master at half moon bay marina If you're heading up the Hudson River, Half Moon Bay is 20 miles north of the George Washington Bridge. They have stellar dog walking paths and parks that start at the marina. They're the only deep water marina in a 30 mile radius and the marina is fully protected with a wave attenuated seawall. Half Moon Bay has many services, including high speed Wi-Fi, pump out, divers, mechanics and access to enterprise car rental with free pickup and delivery. Half Moon Bay is very close to a local airport and train service to New York City, and they offer looper discounts at a local fuel dock. Stop by then see them when you're on the Hudson River. We're back on Great Loop Radio today. We are talking with Chris and Hugh Hopkins. They completed the Great Loop on uh, November 19th, which is just 10 days ago from when we're recording this, so congratulations to both of you. Their style of looping, Um, Chris went along for the parts that she felt she would enjoy. Cube did the entire thing with a combination of 11 different crew members throughout the course of the loop. So um, a great option for people who have others who are willing to come or even maybe able to find some folks along the way um, who might be able to provide that second pair of hands and second set of eyes, so to speak. Um, we were talking a little bit about where you exchanged crew and and how you um, you know reached out to friends to help you with this did you have the entire route kind of mapped out with all of the stops and the crew members before you even left
1: no not the whole thing I'd say I probably had I did it in halves I had the whole first half uh, until my son Brian got off that was all planned out when I left Charleston. So all of those stops, and I mean, not the day-by-day stops, but the crew change ones, those were all pretty much set uh, when I left. So that took me from March, and then I I messed around some in Charleston with the boat, and then the boatyard in Oxford. Uh, But yeah, that whole schedule from March up through time we left Chicago, actually, uh, which was, that was determined by the lock in Juliet, right. Right? September fourth was, I think, as I recall, I'll probably never forget that day. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so so
1: uh,
0: well, yeah. no, go ahead.
1: No, yes. So that go ahead.
0: So um how far in advance, because most of these people were flying in to um act as crew for you. How far in advance were you doing things like booking plane tickets?
1: Well, you lose at least a month, but you know, the airlines have gotten more flexible about that. So that turned out to be not as big a deal because. Uh, just because of the nature of airlines changing because of COVID and and all. Uh, I will say, though, we were extremely lucky. We never had uh, a snafu where somebody had to rebook tickets or, you know, sleep in a hotel or any of that. Uh,
2: The guy from Canada got COVID. Your colleague from Canada.
1: Well, that was early on, though. I I did have a work colleague who was going to come in and he got COVID, but that was fairly early on. I think before I even left or... Before I had seriously left the Chesapeake Bay, which is where I really started running fast to, to go do it. So, yeah, it, it, that turn just turned out not to be much of an issue, and you know, partly airlines and partly just good luck. I think good planning.
0: Yeah. Well, and you and you said, um, you know, that you had had done the planning, you had the legs or the the crew change spots picked out. You know, we all know that another kind of looper adage is the most dangerous thing to have on a boat is a schedule. Um, and if you have not heard that before, for anyone listening, you know, sometimes having that schedule leads to poor decisions about traveling on a weather day when it would have been safer to stay at the dock, those types of things. Um, Hugh, obviously, you have a lot of experience, so probably didn't let something like that influence you. Um, but because you had a schedule for, you know, for the most part, all the way around the loop, how did that impact your overall experience? You know, did you feel like you were kind of running fast in some circumstances to try to reach where you needed to be?
1: Well, I did occasionally, of course, yeah. Uh, you know, I I, I do believe the adage is absolutely correct. And people are to think about that and take that to heart. And I tell that to all my crew members. They know the same adage. Uh, they know that this is risky, that something could happen, the boat could break down, it could be weather whatever. So they know that ahead of time. And I, I clearly forewarn them of that. Uh, so, so, but that, that being said, I think it is true, uh, that you can do this. You, there's some, some key points, I think, uh, you know, you really got to be uh, flexible in, inside those little windows. So I always built in, uh, Brian and I always figured one weather day for every five underway days. Now, I'm pretty aggressive about running in bad weather because, you know the boat's a good solid boat you get a down down below salon that that i use more than i use the flybridge uh i'm pretty experienced in bad weather i don't mind running in the fog i don't particularly like the night we may talk about that some but uh you know not that you had to do much fog on the loop i think maybe one day uh so you know but but i think you have to you have to build in flexibility inside this segment you can't just say okay i'm going to make all these 70 mile days every day, that's just not going to happen because things are going to go wrong. And then you need to be able to predict the weather ahead of time. So, you know, I've gotten pretty good about using the tools that uh, Eddie uses on his weather wag and those things to predict the weather and, and be able to look out ahead four or five days a week, 10 days and say, wow, we better get moving here. Now, related to all that was, I didn't really feel like I had to see everything on the loop. Pretty much made up my mind early on. Hey, if I was something up here, I really want to see like Clayton, New York might be a perfect example. We love that. I didn't get enough time in a thousand islands. I would drive back to see that in a second, you know, so sometime when I'm up there, I'd love to drive back. But I figured any of those things, even Canada, I could see again if I really wanted to. Uh, so, so I didn't let that worry my brain that I was going to miss some, some sightseeing thing. And it did, you know, that did when you had weather coming that made for long days, you might have to do 100, 120 miles in a day, You know, start before daylight and end, you know, uh, at sunset, that that sort of thing. Uh, You know, I I think it does lead to a couple of special skills. I'd say the three three biggest skills, I wrote them down somewhere here, were probably uh, being able to anchor anywhere you needed to. So that gave me the the confidence, if you will, to go anywhere. I could be late getting to a marina, which didn't happen very often, maybe once or twice, but I always had confidence. push came to shove, I could pull off the side of the river between two of these uh, wing dams on the Mississippi River and and set a stern anchor and sit there for the night if I needed to, and which we did once or twice. Uh, so anchoring is a very important skill if you're going to do this, I think. Uh, it's an important skill anyway. But I know some people don't like to anchor so much. So. <laughs> uh, you know, I think the other skills are being able to run in the fog or at night I, I don't mind the fog so much. I, I really don't like the night. It probably goes back to my Navy experience. The night's just really confusing. There's a lot of idiots out at night that you don't find out in the fog. The idiots usually stay home when it's foggy, <laughs> and you just have the weather to deal with. So I would say those skills, uh, you know, pretty much the big things to, to, to have, which I think most of the loopers have that capability.
0: Yeah, I I think so. And, um, I'm with you on the dark for sure. Um, we did have a couple of mornings on the rivers, though, where we knew we had a long day and we did leave before first light. And that was not nearly as disconcerting as I expected it to be. Um, no. And we only did that if we knew, you know, the marina we were at was within a mile or two of a lock. So we knew, you know, we'd likely wait at the lock. We'd have the 30 minutes or so actually locking through. And by the time we were coming out of the lock, the sun was up, and you know we had gained an hour in our daylight, well, in our cruising day because of that short little part period of darkness, it was just not nearly as um scary <laughs> as exactly I expected. so
1: it's, it's a lot easier to do in the morning when you're leaving because you've already seen where you were, you know what the, this looks like doing it at night when you're coming into somewhere very shaky. we did it one night. I can't remember the marina you would you might remember it was out of one of the locks the lock kept us there till 10 o'clock at night marina stayed up and there was this whole army of people there to get us in but it was it was this impossible little place to get in it parallel probably
0: heritage harbor
1: probably, probably the marina to the river and they're out there shining a light trying to bring us in it was dangerous as heck and one boat almost did run aground when I left the next morning I said my God, how did we do that?
0: You know, <laughs> we
1: there was like eight of us and we managed to do it, but it wasn't the safest thing as far as running aground. I don't think we were going to hurt ourselves, but we could have easily run aground.
0: Yes, and we, ha- we had a similar experience. There were two, I think, legs where we're held up by locks and got there later than we had planned, you know, leaving in the morning, knowing that's a possibility when you're going through several locks. Right. Never had one in pitch black, but had some after dusk and was getting dark. And it is just so much easier to leave early while it's still dark exactly as you said you've seen the place in daylight um so you kind of have your bearings a little bit more um but so yeah those skill sets being comfortable with that um is super important to do the loop anyway all three of them the anchoring the you know being comfortable on a dark morning and the weather predictions um but especially helpful um when you've got that schedule and you know uh, for a completely different reason we've had a bit of a schedule too because we both work aboard and have you know places that we are committed to being and um A lot of your experiences are very similar because Michael flies out a lot for work. So that's why I know that, oh, Riverton, New York's right by the Syracuse airport. You can be there in 10 minutes. Um, But it's it's the same kind of experience and it's a different um, requirement. I still don't like to say that we're on a schedule. Um, We just have kind of benchmarks in mind of where we'd like to be. (laughs) And, you know, we have been committed the whole time to if we could not get the boat to where we needed to be, then we'd park it and take a car. And that has always... Yeah, you know, we've been fortunate as well that we've been able to get the boat there. But um, as long as you have that plan B, the schedule thing doesn't have to be a horrible, you know, bad word. It can be okay um, as long as you don't let that force you into some bad decisions. But besides will, your, per- yeah, go ahead, you.
1: I was going to say, you know, there's one feature, one thing I forgot to say back when we were discussing the schedule thing, and that is you do always have to keep safety number one in mind. I mean, I was captain of a ship in the navy, and you know, safety was always the number one thing that nobody gets hurt. Nobody, we don't do anything that's gonna hurt anybody. We may run the boat aground and damage a prop or something, but so you really always got to keep that safety in mind first thing and not not ever push it. I, you know, I, I don't want to in any way imply that we push safety to go make a schedule or something because that's just not the way it was.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. And um, again, your level of competence and confidence <laughs> In your boat handling and in managing the boat itself is part of what makes that difference. Um, and you know, we were well into the loop. And Michael, of course, has done the whole loop twice. Mm-hmm. But you know, before we had our first dark morning underway, we were well into the loop. Um, I think if we were trying to do that right out of the gate, I probably would have been extremely nervous. So, um, absolutely agree with the safety first. And it, with that in mind, you know, how did you go about kind of training up each individual crew member quickly? As they came aboard i know you said you had cruised with many of them so many of them had some boating experience but how did you kind of you know instruct them on how to do things on your particular boat in these circumstances
1: well for somebody that's absolutely do i have a checklist i love checklists i got Mm -hmm. probably 20 30 of them i've stolen some from the, the great loop website but i have a checklist for somebody who's who's brand new and i'll actually go through that and show them everything over over a period of the first day for people that have been with me before I mean, or they have some experience, you know, there's only a couple of things. I want them to make sure they know how to use the head and make sure that uh, they know how to throw a line. Uh, And that's about all I need, like, to to get underway. Uh, You know, when I tie up the boat, when I come into a marina, I always, uh, I just make it as easy as possible. And everybody, we have marriage savers, I have... I go out and I personally rig the lines, three lines on each side, two fenders on each side. I'm ready to go alongside port our starboard. I don't have to go figure that all out at the last minute. And so all they have to do is get one line that I tell them to get this line to that person on the dock or, you know, we'll get it looped around a cleat or something. Then They don't really have to know too much. So I try to make it as simple as possible. And then, you know, as far as teaching them to, to pilot the boat when we're underway, I do it a little at a time, right? start with a little manual steering and then, you know, teach them all about how to use the autopilot and some of the risks of that the anomalies of my particular boat, which are, there are a couple. Uh, and then we just gradually work through it. And what I do is I take every opportunity to, to train them that I can. So when an opportunity presents itself, I try to explain it without being too overbearing. I can be a little bit overwhelming to people sometimes like, you know, that too much, but <laughs> but I do that and then I watch them like a hawk I have a the the Grand Banks has a steering console seat but it doesn't have a, a second seat for a passenger like a lot of boats. so I have a director's chair that I take up there and sit next to the helm some people call it the overseer's chair uh-huh. and so and I'm usually watching pretty close what they're doing right if there's anything going on I'm watching and yeah, we just never, we never had too much trouble. I, I think the crew is usually as good as I am. They're usually as attentive as I am because they don't want to mess up. And, you know, I've only got a couple that like to be on their cell phones all the time and you know, <laughs> work through that.
0: <laughs> so final question, and this one really is for both of you to answer. Um, you know, if you, hindsight being what it is, if you could look back and, and plan it again, would you change anything about the way you you went about doing the loop?
1: Go ahead, no, why don't you no, answer first
2: thing? I don't think so. I mean, maybe if you had time or if there was time in the schedule, you could do a couple of little side trips. You know, we had not planned on going to Clayton in New York at all until one of my neighbor friends said, you've got to go there. You've got to go up the St. Lawrence Seaway. It's so beautiful up there. The Thousand Island area. And so I talked to Hube and I said, do we have any time where we could just go and see what she's talking about? And that was one thing <laughs> we never regretted. So, you know, maybe there could be other opportunities for that, too, um, if time permitted. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. Always allocating more. There's never enough time. I mean, I'm sure in your, your loop, you missed a lot of things you didn't see. Yeah. And so I know you tried to see everything because you're you're trying to do it to help us out, too. Uh, I would say that if I could get people to do longer legs, having Brian for that six week period was mm-hmm. a gut. Uh, so if I could get people to come for a month that I could really get along with for a month, that that would be better. Uh, but I would do it again. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, I think it didn't detract from the trip and the accomplishment in, in any way. I didn't feel it was just a, it was a blast.
0: Yeah. And something you yeah. actually just said you kind of brought up another question for me that I think a lot of people would wonder about. So I know I already said it was the final question, but I do have one more. (laughs) Um, How, you know, from an interpersonal standpoint, I know these were mostly family members and friends, but you said something along the lines, if there was somebody I could stand to have aboard for a month. We've seen lots of, and I get lots of requests for, you know, strangers to crew. How challenging is it to bring somebody aboard what is basically your home for that time period and have them there for a week, in your case, mostly a week, um, you know, sometimes more.
1: Well, there was two things I would say that, that the, to worry about and work on. One was politics. If you have a difference, if somebody who is of a different political view, (laughs) just make it off limits. So this friend that did three (laughs) weeks with me the last time, he is of the different political persuasion, uh, and for the whole three weeks we made it clear as a bell no politics allowed okay so there was no discussion even when uh president trump announced he was going to run again that topic didn't come up it was never <laughs> even mentioned did yeah. you see so that's one the other thing is eating habits strange as it sounds i have found the most challenging thing is eating habits both whether you know, one person wants to go out to eat, one person wants to eat in the on the boat, one person wants to sit in the bar and eat, another person doesn't want to do that, you know, one person wants Kentucky fried chicken, the other one (laughs) would like a little more gourmet, it's eating habits that I think drive the biggest wedge between people, and so I've learned to just give up on that a little bit, and Mm -hmm. uh, you know, until I absolutely have to put my foot down, and then I also can tell people right up front that, hey, eating habits can be pretty strange. You know, you'd be, you'd be amazed. I mean, some people want their salad first and can't eat anything else until then. And some people have to eat the salad <laughs> done when dinner's finished. And so it's like, oh my God, you know, and you're, you, you just don't think of these things. Yeah. So, <laughs> those are the two big challenges. That's Otherwise hard, it was a lot too. of fun. What's
2: times of meals also. Oh,
1: times, but all related to eating. I think eating yeah. habits in general are like, oh my God, you do what? but
0: <laughs> very interesting. Yep. We are all kind of set in our ways, aren't we? So um, I like cube that you were able to be, you know, kind of flexible for most of it um, with those different crew member. Um, so thank you to both of you for sharing your story, because I think it is um, probably really encouraging for either solo loopers who really don't want to be solo or reluctant spouses, whether that's a husband or a wife um, who, you know, maybe have a partner who has a different um thought about how much of the loop they'd like to do Um, like i said at the beginning i think for many couples that creates an impasse that um generally results in one kind of caving to the other's uh wishes in that area you know somebody perhaps who's had their hearts on the loop and never does it because they married somebody who isn't interested or um you know uh, somebody who isn't interested but goes along because they want to do it for their significant other but they kind of let you know all along that this was not their idea or their choice so um i love the way that the two of you found to make this work for both of you and um chris even though you didn't do the whole thing had some great experiences on the loop and you you know got to accomplish your goal of doing the whole thing so thank you for sharing that story it's been really enlightening you're welcome
1: thank you so much we appreciate all your good work it was uh, uh, the information that's out there is just amazing so thank you well
0: i'm so glad it was helpful. That's what it's all about. I want to thank you for your um, service in the Navy and congratulations to Brian on passing the bar. Because I'm, I'm not sure if he knew that yet when when we met. I know yeah, he had taken the test, knew. but I don't think he had yeah, the he results. So congratulations that. to him too. So, um, so thank you, Hugh and Chris. Um, thank you for being with us. Thanks, You're welcome, ma'am.
2: and enjoy the rest of your loop.
0: Thank you so much, and to everyone who's watched and listened today. We will be back next week with another episode of Great Loop Radio. Until then, safe cruising.